Well, amen. Thank you, worship team and congregation for stirring my heart in singing and through song. It's a delight to be with each one of you here at First Baptist Gadsden. Uh, I am from Mobile, just down the road. And so anytime I'm back in Alabama, I just like I'm home. And so everyone knows how to talk right. And most people, most, most people know how to cook right. And uh, it's just good to be in Alabama. I adore your pastor, Matt, his wife, Whitney. Uh, think the world of them. I remember so fondly talking with Matt in the coffee shop at Southern Seminary a decade ago when he was talking about the possibility of coming here to be your pastor and uh, the joy he had, the sense of enthusiasm, the sense of calling, and uh, the sense of love for a congregation that he was yet to get to know. I sense that day, and it's good to see it in person this day with you. I bring you greetings from Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City, one of six Southern Baptist seminaries that you own as members of this church, uh, one in Kansas City that I'm privileged to lead, one in Louisville, Kentucky, one in New Orleans, Louisiana, one in Wake Forest, North Carolina, one in Fort Worth, Texas, and one in Ontario, California, the Los Angeles area. And through your cooperative program, you support us and some 20,000 or so students training for ministry at your six seminaries. So thank you so much for that support. I want to draw your attention this morning, the time we have together, to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16, we'll be looking together at verses 13 through 20 and thinking together about the church triumphant. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. As you're turning, one last personal word of reference. Uh, I, I knew well your former pastor, several removed, Dr. Rick Cagle. Uh, when I was a college student, his two sons, Alan and Mark, were friends of mine, and Dr. Cagle was a kind source of encouragement to me as I was beginning my early days in ministry. Of course, he's been with the Lord now a number of years, but he would speak so fondly of this church as well. And so it's a lot to be here, even with that in mind also. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 and following, we're thinking together about the church triumphant. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea of Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He then said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. This is one of those mountain peak passages in our Bibles, in the Gospels, where our Lord speaks so directly, so clearly about the church, the church that he is establishing. He speaks here proleptically, but it will be established in Acts chapter 2 at the preaching of Pentecost, where Peter preaches and, and 3,000 are brought into the church. And then we see the church taking off throughout the book of Acts and spreading throughout the Mediterranean region. And then we get to the epistles in the New Testament, and we see these different letters written by apostles or colleagues of apostles to these different literal churches there throughout the region of Asia Minor. Then we come to the end of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, and we see these seven letters written to seven real, literal congregations there in the first century. 
And then the unfolding of, of the book of Revelation where Jesus speaks of that will come at the end of the age when he comes back for his church. So what I want you to pick up on is throughout the New Testament, we see that Christ is about the business of building his church. The ministry that Christ has given himself to in this age is that primarily of his church. And so this morning, he cares about this church. He loves this church. He's devoted to this church. He's not preoccupied with another galaxy somewhere, uh, putting out some other cosmic fire. No, he is equipped and capable of knowing and loving and caring for his church, these congregations, such as First Baptist Gadsden, Alabama. We see in these verses that Jesus is in the course of his ministry, and he's come to a place, verse 13 tells us, in the district of Caesarea Philippi, where he pulls his disciples aside and begins to dialogue with them specifically about who people say that the Son of Man is. And he's speaking to them because life's most important question, after all, is who do you say that the Son of Man is? In fact, you see in these verses, Jesus begins with the general sense, asking his disciples, who are people saying that I am? But then he sharpens the question to his disciples in a personal way and asks them, who do you say that I am? In so doing, Jesus speaks quite clearly about his church, and he gives us from these verses three truths about the church. Three, three truths about the church. And these are, these are truths that we can draw a line directly from this passage to this congregation, and we can draw the lines directly from this passage to our Christian life this morning. And it is right and important that we think clearly about the church, and it's right and important that we think clearly, first and foremost, about who Jesus Christ is. As you'll see, Jesus presents to us, first and foremost, the first truth, that he establishes his church on sound doctrine. Jesus establishes his church on sound doctrine. Verse 13 tells us, he, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? This is the Easter season. Last Sunday, we celebrated Easter around the world and, and in Kansas City, like in Gadsden. It was great to see churches filled and voices raised and a sense of celebration and triumph. And with Easter always comes that sweet season of reflection on the resurrection of Christ. Also, Easter brings with it a, a surplus of religious documentaries on television, on Discovery Channel, the Science Channel, and, and these different documentaries we see. And, and, and annually, when it's Easter season, you'll see these documentaries labeled something like the, the quest for the historical Jesus. And uh, these documentaries invariably go, go something like this. They're, they're talking to someone with, a, with advanced degrees, terminal degrees, perhaps PhD from Harvard or Princeton or Yale or an elite institution. And, uh, and they asked this professor, like, who, do, who, who was the historical Jesus? And generally, the response will go something like this. Well, he, he was a, a great moral leader. He was a great religious teacher. He, he, he drew a crowd. He impacted the culture. And those documentaries usually will give Jesus superlative after superlative, but they will fall short and actually making the claim that's most important of all, that Jesus is God's Son. 
Jesus here sharpens the question with his disciples because he's wanting to surface for them in their hearts and in their minds clarity around who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because salvation rises or falls on being right about the person and work of Jesus. And the church rises or falls in its legitimacy on being right about the person and work of Christ. So we asked them, verse 13, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And then they said to him, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. What's going on here? In the first century, every Jewish boy and every Jewish girl was taught to expect the Messiah, to look for the Messiah. And there was this pent-up messianic expectation In fact, in Jesus' day, others would come along claiming to be the Messiah on occasion, but they would lack the signs and the ability and the authority that Christ had to verify that claim. But there was this pent-up messianic expectation. And so, so even here, the crowd says, some say, John the Baptist. At this point, John the Baptist has been, has been, has been martyred, but still some people think Jesus is John the Baptist come back or, Others think Elijah. Remember, Elijah was this prophet who performed many signs and wonders, and Jesus comes performing signs and wonders. And so some think that Jesus is Elijah come back. Still others, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, and Jesus was the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, weeping over, weeping over Jerusalem's rejection of, of his Messiahship. Or perhaps one of the prophets. So the best thinking in the first century amongst the onlooking crowd has Jesus placed in the pantheon of Jewish greats? But that's a classification that falls woefully short. Jesus said to them in verse 15, But who do you say that I am? And that is life's most important question for those in the room today, for those joining us via live stream television. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered him, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Peter, like, almost always gets it wrong, right? He was the apostle who was born with his foot in his mouth. He he so often gets it wrong, but here he gets it by the illumination of the Spirit. He gets it spectacularly right. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. So Jesus says to him, verse 17, I said, Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who was in heaven. You got it right, Peter, because the spirit has illumined this to you by the power of the father. And I say to you, you are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church. What is this rock? This rock is this statement that Peter has just made about the person and work of Christ. Some people, some of our friends and neighbors say, well, the rock, you need to understand the rock here is a reference to the papacy and Peter's the first pope. And that's not at all what's going on here. Jesus is not building his church upon a man and heaven knows he's not building upon Peter. Jesus here is declaring that my church will have a foundation built upon the person and work of Christ. And brothers and sisters, there's a lot the church can get wrong. You can get wrong what type of music you're going to have. You can get, get, get wrong what, t- what, what color you're going to paint the walls in the fellowship hall. You can get wrong about a lot of things. 
But if you get wrong about the person and work of Christ, everything else is insignificant. Because that is the most important issue for a church to get right. The preaching of the gospel, the declaration of Christ. And so Jesus says, my church is established on this rock, this confession, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now notice with me the second truth. Notice what Jesus says in verse 18. Also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church notice the word my and the second truth we see is that jesus is lord over the church jesus is lord over the church i will build my church I once had a church member say to me, and he said it sweetly, and, and, and there's a sense in which he was, he was accurate in what he said, but he said, the thing I love about our church is it's not my church, it's not your church, it's, it's all of ours church. And that's kind of accurate, right? But actually, think about it, it's not my church, it's not your church, it's actually not all of ours church, it's, it's his church, Right? And sometimes as Baptists, we get confused in our congregational polity and we think that, that the great quest of like leadership in Southern Baptist life, the great quest of leadership in a local church is to get everybody to agree on what we want to do. And if everybody agrees on it, then, then surely the will of God must be in there somewhere. But if a church, even by unanimous vote, begins to make decisions and move in directions that are contrary to Scripture and that are without the leadership of the Spirit and without honoring the Lordship of Jesus Christ. A church can have a unanimous vote but be missing the will of God entirely, you see? Jesus says, I will build my church. Jesus is not interested in building or in supporting or subsidizing human kingdoms or human efforts but he is committed to building his church. I will build my church. But notice thirdly with me here. Notice that Jesus guarantees the church's success. So I will say to you, you're Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not overpower it what's going on here well just let each one of these five words kind of sink in i jesus is saying i'm not outsourcing this responsibility to peter or james or john or gabriel or michael jesus saying i i, I love the personal ownership i will not i i hope to or i might or if if you know the culture is accepting i i not 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 not, not probably i will build there's an activity, there's an industry here, is there not? I, I will build, I will build my. And I will build my church, church, the called out ones, those called out of the world to covenant together in a congregational community just like this. Jesus is committed to building his church. I lead a seminary that, that is not a church. It's what we might think of as a parachurch ministry. And inasmuch as we are faithful to serving the church, then we know we can serve with confidence that our Lord is with us. 
But if my seminary or, or, or any other parachurch or sub-church ministry becomes the tail that wags the dog and seeks to exert influence over and distract from and train resources from the local church and what Christ has given himself to, then we've gotten off base. What is more, some people read this and, 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 and take it, well, Jesus is saying he'll build our church, so I guess that's permission slip to be lazy or unwise or careless, apathetic. No, we all know churches around that congregations that have withered. But this is a clear promise that our Lord made 2,000 years ago. And the promise has rang true century after century, generation after generation, continent after continent, that throughout the progress of history until our Lord returns, he will indeed have a remnant. He will indeed have his people. He will indeed be building his church. But there is some specific confidence we can draw here. Certainly there is. Some specific confidence because we know that our Lord is committed to honoring those who honor his word. To strengthening those who are serving his gospel. He's committed to abiding with those who abide in him. So much so that verse 18 tells us the gates of Hades will not overpower. Sometimes people read that and think, okay, I guess that means that Satan will not win. Well, it, it certainly means no less than that. Satan will not win in the final analysis. But also what it means here, it, Hades is a reference to death and saying even when one of God's choicest servants dies, God always has a next, his next person up. Even when Billy Graham faded off the scene, God is raising up a new generation of gospel preachers domestically and internationally. The Lord will build his church. Now, notice this fourth truth with me here, and I want, to, I want to just meditate here with you for a few minutes. Verse 19, Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. What is Jesus referring to here? He's referring to his desire for a pure church. This keys to the kingdom of heaven and binding and loosing, we see also referenced in Matthew chapter 18. It's referring to binding and loosing one in one sin. And the responsibility of the gospel preacher and of gospel people to, to call for repentance and to celebrate that repentance when it's exercised and to say to people upon the authority of Scripture, as you have repented of your sin, you have been forgiven, praise God. But also a call prophetically to say if people persist in their sin and don't repent of their sin, then they should have no assurance that Christ has forgiven them of that sin. You see, Jesus wants a pure church. I'm privileged to serve in a Southern Baptist setting. I've been Southern Baptist since basically the time of my birth. Grew up in Mobile at Cottage Hill Baptist Church, very faithful pastor named Fred Wolf. Uh, though my parents took me to church every week, I did not become a believer until college as a college athlete in Mobile and surrendered my life to Christ. And, and in college, began a sense of call to ministry, and that began to be flushed out in a Southern Baptist context at Dolphin Way Baptist Church, then at several different Southern Baptist churches along the way, and obviously serving now at a Southern Baptist seminary. And so I'm about as Southern Baptist as one can get. And uh, take pride in saying that. Don't want to be anything less than that. But when you think about Southern Baptist as the largest Protestant denomination in America, that says something, but it doesn't say as much as we think it says. 
Southern Baptists now have nearly 15 million members in our nearly 50,000 congregations. But on any given Sunday, about 6 to 7 million of those show up. That's pre-COVID. And so we have a situation where decade after decade after decade, we, we, have, we have people that are kind of sort of affiliated with Southern Baptist churches, but their life in no way really reflects the life of Christ living within them. And we have a testimonial problem as a part of that. This all came pressing home to me just a few years ago. I was in um, Kansas City area. I was down shopping with my wife on the plaza. And the plaza is this, uh, this outdoor shopping area. It's a beautiful area designed in the early 20th century. And it's kind of block after block of restaurant and stores and just a really uh, elegant place to go and spend a few hours walking around. My wife and I were there and our five kids were in, at other activities and just the two of us there. And we were kind of walking and shopping and enjoying the pretty day. And and uh, we kind of broke up for a minute where she wanted to go to some ladies' shops and I wanted to go to some men's shops. And, you know, we just kind of, kind of thought we'd divide and conquer for a little while. And, uh, and so she went her way, I went my way. Well, I popped into this, this men's store there on the plaza. And it's one of these men's store with, you know, suits and ties and nice accoutrements and whatnot. And I'm there kind of walking through it. And uh, when I walked in, you know, the salesman comes up to me, one of the salesmen. And he's, he's like in his early 70s, maybe mid-70s, tall, slender guy, gray hair, well put together. And uh, he immediately starts talking, Pastor Matt. Starts talking, doing what a salesman does. He's building rapport. And he's trying to get to know me. And I'm just kind of trying to kind of mope, you know, meander through the store for a moment, not, not looking to make a friend for life, just, just trying, to, trying to move through the store. Well, I am struck by as he's talking how, how coarse his language is. I mean, I, I'm just like blown away at how, how, how crude his language is talking to me, profane. And like at this point, not even Jason the pastor or Jason the Christian, just like as a member of the human race, you know, of, the, of humanity surprised that a salesman would be talking this rough. So I'm like trying to get out of the store, but he won't let me go. He's talking and I go in this back, the, the door on one end and I'm making my way to the other door to exit and he's staying with me and I'm trying to get out the store. Well, I, I, I um, it's just, I'm trying to get out that other door. I notice my wife walks in that back door. I'm like, oh great. Okay. I, I got to go like kind of get my wife and we got to kind of make our way through the store, out of the store without this guy, you know, continue to be in our ear. Well, anyway, I get my wife, and he comes up, and sure enough, he, like having my wife there, you know, a southern lady, and all of her elegance does not diminish his profanity one bit. So he's just, he's just rolling with it, you know. So he's talking, and we're, to, and we're trying to get out of the store. We're, we're making our way towards the exit, and he says to me, well, where in Kansas City do you folks live? And I say, well, we live on, on the north side of Kansas City. And he says, well, I used to live on the north side, okay? And so, again, I'm just trying to get out the store. And then he says, well, where in, where in northern Kansas City? I said, oh, well, we live in the Gladstone area. I used to live in the Gladstone area. Okay. Okay, okay. Well, where in Gladstone? I said, well, we live off North Oak Traffic Way. <clears throat> Excuse me. I said, we live off Vivian Road. I used to live off Vivian Road. And again, I'm just trying to get out of there. Like, not trying to make a friend for life. I just want to leave. Okay. And, uh, and well, where, where on Vivian Road? And I said, well, um, we actually Vivian Road and, and your North Oak Traffic Way. And he says, I used to live right by there. And he said, what house do you live in? I said, well, there's this white house consists of on a hill we live in. He said, oh, I know the house. I thought the Baptist owned that house. <laughs> and uh, I said, they, they do. And I can see now that like, he's beginning to, you know, like the gears are turning as to the past five minutes of what he's been saying. And I said, the Baptist, the Baptist owned the house, sir. And he says, are you, are you affiliated with that Baptist seminary? And, and I, said, uh, I, I, said, I said, I am. And I can tell now he's like really thinking hard about what's happened. And uh, he says to me, he says, what do you do there? I said, well, I, I'm the president. And he goes, hallelujah, I'm a Baptist. <laughs> and I just wanted to like die in that moment. Like I hope no one in the store is hearing this guy testify that he's a Baptist. 
But in that moment, it struck me kind of representative of, of a deeper problem of, of, of when churches and believers don't take following Christ seriously and don't take our testimony of Christ seriously and get flabby around the edges and let any type of sin persist in our midst, any type of lifestyle be carried on without a church maintaining the purity and witness of the congregation. Perfection, no, obviously not, but a true desire to pursue sanctification and honor Christ how we live individually and thus how we live collectively. Brothers and sisters, it's a great calling we have to follow Christ, to do so in a covenant community such as First Baptist Gadsden, to do so in a church with so many young kids, seeing them round, run through here, how sweet, to see God working in your midst, and to do all of that, remaining faithful to His Word, to His Gospel, to His Great Commission, and doing so as you do, abiding under the promise of Christ that He will build His church. I say that you don't rest on that promise. I say cling to it. I say that you don't retrench in light of that promise, but advance in light of that promise. I say that you don't grow cold and passive in light of that promise. Grow hot and active in light of that promise.